page 11. And after we are finished tonight, we will not meet again until January the 20th. January 20th, so we have a long, long break. After tonight. So tonight's the last night until January the 20th. That's good, because I was going to count we would have gotten a bunch of pages done while you were gone. <laughs> so you see at the top of page 11, it says the second 2,000 years, part one. So the Old Testament covers 4,000 years of history. The first 2,000 of those 4,000 is covered in the first 11 chapters. And then from Genesis chapter 12 to the uh, end of the Old Testament and actually beyond the end of the Old Testament, there's uh, another 2,000 years. But because that's a lot of material, then it's divided into three parts. And the reason I say beyond the end of the Old Testament is because at the top of page 11, it not only says the second 2,000 years, part three, but then under that, it says the intertestament times. So the period we're going to talk about tonight is the time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the new, a period of about 400 years. So the Old Testament ends, and the New Testament does not begin until approximately 400 years later. But of course, that doesn't mean that uh, nothing's going on in between. There's a lot going on in the world, and much of what is going on in the world is preparing for the beginning of the New Testament and the coming of Christ, which starts the New Testament. So that's what we're going to be looking at then tonight, that 400-year period, and some of the things that were happening in that time period that set the stage for the coming of the promised one, the Messiah. So just a very quick review then. We've seen that Israel had its first three kings in Saul and David and in Solomon. And after Solomon... The, in 931 B.C., that was the end of Solomon's reign, and then the kingdom was split. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, made some very unwise choices and uh, split the kingdom. The kingdom was split into the north and the south, the north called Israel, and the south called Judah. Uh, Israel comprised of ten of the twelve tribes, and then Judah of two, Judah and, and Benjamin. And the first king in the south was Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and in the north, Jeroboam, uh, a soldier, uh, a cabinet member in Solomon's, uh, in Solomon's administration. And the southern kingdom lasted about 300 years uh, and then was exiled to Babylon. Uh, so the inhabitants, or many of the inhabitants of the southern kingdom were taken captive and taken to Babylon in the year 586 B.C. Now, all of this is on previous pages that we've looked at in the weeks prior. I'm just reminding you about this. And the northern kingdom was taken captive as well. They were taken captive by Assyria in the year 722 B.C. So the southern kingdom lasted over 300 years. The northern kingdom lasted 200 years. Each of them had 19 kings. Um, and uh, the, the, the northern kingdom, Israel, was not to be heard from again after they were taken captive by the Assyrians in 722. And uh, the uh, southern kingdom, taken captive in 586 in Babylon, was returned 70 years later. They were returned to the, uh, to the Holy Land, to Palestine, 
And that was in fulfillment of a prophecy that the prophet Jeremiah had given, that this captivity would uh, happen in judgment against the southern kingdom, but that it would last for a period of 70 years. Now, when they returned, they were led by three primary uh, persons, Zerubbabel, uh, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And you read about that return in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, And during that captivity, we're introduced to a very important figure in the Old Testament. And given some of the things he predicted, an important figure going forward into the New Testament, that's Daniel. (coughs) Because Daniel was one of the exiles taken from uh, Palestine to, to Babylon. taken there as a teenager, along with uh, a number of the other choice uh, choice Jews that uh, Babylon chose to to use for their own purposes in Babylon. Three of those were, sometimes we learned in Sunday school, the three Hebrew children, uh, you'll remember, and uh, I'll make allusion to them a bit uh, as well, in a bit as well. So, uh, much of what we're going to talk about tonight We glean from the book of Daniel. Daniel was a captive in Babylon, and Daniel predicted, Daniel prophesied. Hey, Mike, will you get that door? Shut the door for me. Thank you. Yeah, really. (coughs) Is that your husband's class where they're having all that fun? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He's a fun guy. He's a fun guy. How we got our Bible, man. That's fun stuff. So I want to just go through some of the history then that uh, we get, starting with Babylon, where Daniel is and where other captives are. And this captivity took place in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar the king. (coughs) Nebuchadnezzar reigned from 605 B.C., 605 B.C. to 562 B.C., 605, 562, 43 43-year reign, and it was a a fabulous empire uh, in terms of its wealth, in terms of its power. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar built what are known as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, if you've ever heard of those, but it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, uh, the Hanging Gardens. His his reign uh, in the Babylonian Empire was so spectacular that Saddam Hussein, uh, the late Saddam Hussein, uh, sought to rebuild it. And I don't know if you, a lot of people don't know that, but that was part of what he was trying to do. He was trying to rebuild and recreate the splendor of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Saddam Hussein's hometown in Iraq, which is, uh, Iraq is where uh, Babylon, uh, the city of Babylon is located. But his hometown, uh, Hussein's hometown is Tikrit. And it's the same hometown as uh, uh, a Muslim warrior from 800 years earlier named Saladin. And Saladin was able to take uh, Jerusalem, which led to one of the one of the Crusades. And so here's Hussein from this historic town, from a Muslim perspective, uh, and he's from Iraq, which is ancient Babylon, and he's interested in, in rebuilding that. He spent a uh, billion dollars to rebuild uh, Babylon. 
Uh, you may have you may have read about the Southern Palace during the Iraq War, some of the palaces that that he had, but one of them was called the Southern Palace, and the Southern Palace uh, actually had a, a recreation of the room where, in Daniel chapter five, Belshazzar sees handwriting on the wall, um, and uh, and so he's uh, he was he was trying to rebuild that. He had uh, coins minted with Nebuchadnezzar's uh, image uh, on them. <coughs> so he was quite serious about this. But all of this uh, Babylon talk and the, the role of Babylon uh, is because Babylon took the Jews captive in 586 B.C. because Daniel and others were there. And Daniel uh, predicted, prophesied while he was there. And his writings are contained in the 12 chapters of the, of the book of Daniel. Now, famously in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar sees, has a, a dream, and he sees an image, and he's troubled by this dream of a statue, and he doesn't know what the dream means. So in Daniel 2, he calls the guys he usually calls. He calls the astrologers and the seers union, and he says, who do you have available? Who can interpret this dream for me? And those guys come, and they say, uh, "Tell me the, tell me what you've what you've seen, and we'll give you an interpretation." Now, this was the normal shtick for these guys: tell us what you've seen, and we'll make something up. But the trick this time was he doesn't remember. I don't remember what I saw. So not only do you guys have to tell me the interpretation, you got to tell me what the dream was. Well, the gig is up. Because if they lie, which is what they always do, they give an interpretation where they just make it up. But now, if they make up what the actual dream was, none of this is going to jog his memory if it's not if it's not accurate. So they're in deep. And they remember that there's a guy, uh, one of the captives, who uh, is in tight with the God of Israel. And they call Daniel. And Daniel is able to not only tell Nebuchadnezzar the dream, but then he's able to interpret the dream as well. And it's Daniel who says, you saw this statue. And the statue had four different metals. The head was made of gold. The chest area was made of silver. The midsection was made of bronze. And the legs were made of iron. And he says, I'll give you the interpretation. You are, O king, that head of gold, representing your kingdom. But... Your kingdom is not going to last forever, as evidenced by the fact that there's a successor kingdom, the silver kingdom, which historically hadn't happened yet. The kingdom in existence at the time was only the head of gold. But you have three world empires that will come later, but they're being predicted hundreds of years, in, in some cases, before by, by Daniel. And history tells us that that second kingdom was the Persian Empire. The third one, the bronze, was represented by the Greek Empire. And then the fourth one, the, the Roman Empire. So that's in, in Daniel chapter 2. That's what uh, Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed. That's what Daniel is able to tell him and interpret for him. In Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar makes a gold statue of himself. And he orders that whenever music is played, everyone is to bow down before this image of of Nebuchadnezzar. And three of the captives uh, refused to do that. And you, many of you know their names as Shadrach, 
and Meshach and Abednego. Uh, but they're, that's, their, that's their Babylonian names. It's their Babylonian names. They actually had Hebrew names. And their Hebrew names are Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. So the Babylonians, when they, when they, took, these, when they took these captives, they sought to enculturate them. And part of that enculturation was to, to change their names. And in fact, the, let me give you those three uh, Hebrew names again. Hananiah. Notice the Yah at the end. Because that's, that's God. That's Yahweh. Hananiah. Mishael. You think of a name for God? El Elohim or El Shaddai. God. And then uh, Azariah. So each of those names had the name of God. The the true and living God. But they changed their names to Babylonian. Even Daniel has uh, the name of God in it as, as well. And Daniel's name, he was given a Babylonian name of Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar. That's in uh, Daniel chapter 3. You know that uh, they refused. They were thrown into the fiery furnace. God miraculously saved them. In Daniel chapter 4, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has yet another, has a, another dream that he is to, to humble himself before God, but he refuses to do that. And in judgment, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is insane for seven years. Uh, completely, completely gone. Insane for seven years. But then after he recovers his sanity, he makes one of several declarations of praise to, to God. So as you read through chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, you know, you've got these, these dreams, you've got uh, him making an image of himself, telling people to bow down as, as if he's God. But every time he's rescued, or every time something good is done for him, he'll praise whatever God is a, did it for him. And so he uh, praises God in chapter 2 and verse 47, chapter 3, verses 28 and 29, chapter 4, verses 34 through 37. So that's the reign of, of Nebuchadnezzar and uh, at the zenith of the Babylonian Empire, but after 562, there is a uh, there's a successor named. Uh, it doesn't doesn't really matter for for our purposes, but uh, Amel Marduk. He only lasted two years, and then there was a coup in 560 BC. Remember, I said Nebuchadnezzar lasted from 605 to 562. His successor lasted only two years. 560 BC. There's a coup, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law becomes the king. But he doesn't last very long either. There's uh, yet another coup, and Nabonidus becomes the, the emperor. And over time, uh, Nabonidus is the emperor at the time the empire falls, in 539 B.C. So he's the emperor for about 21 years. But he vacates Babylon. He, most of those 21 years, he doesn't actually stay in Babylon. He goes to Palestine, believe it or not. And he leaves in charge... Uh, Belshazzar and that's why you read in the book of Daniel not about Nabonidus but you read about Belshazzar because Nabonidus is the emperor but he left and Belshazzar is, uh, is in charge and it's in Daniel chapter 5 that it's Belshazzar who sees the famous writing on the wall and uh, that's been variously interpreted I mean, one paraphrase of that really is your number is up <laughs> no, I'm not making that up. <laughs> Your number is up. 
But indeed, uh, the time had come for the end of the Babylonian Empire, and it was succeeded in 539, 539 B.C., by the Persian Empire, and the first emperor of the Persians was a man named Cyrus, Cyrus. And he was able to conquer Babylon without a battle. Conquered it without a battle. In fact, um, interestingly, to me, very interestingly, in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter uh, 44, we read of this very same Cyrus. 150 years before there is a Cyrus. So Isaiah's writing 150 years before this stuff's happening in the uh, in the book of Daniel. And Cyrus is the one who's going to take over Babylon. But here's what Isaiah says in chapter 44 and verse 27. Be dry and I will dry up your streams who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Now remember, the the southern kingdom is captive in uh, in Babylon. They'll be captive for 70 years. They do eventually return, and they are able to rebuild in Jerusalem. But here's a prophecy, a prediction, that Cyrus is going to be the one who initiates all of that, that he will be the one who says, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and level the mountains and break down the gates of bronze and and so on. So this is all a prophecy from Isaiah in Isaiah 44, 27 to 45 and verse 7 about this one who would come, Cyrus, by name, before Cyrus is 150 years before Cyrus is on on the scene. And he comes on the scene, as I say, in 539 B.C. Now, in the 1800s, in the 19th century, uh, there was a discovery of something called the Cylinder of Cyrus. And it's uh, it's an inscription. Uh, The Cylinder of, of Cyrus. It's in the British Museum today. And it says on it, without any battle, he entered the town sparing any calamity. Now, this is about him taking over Babylon and doing so without uh, without battle. I return to sacred cities on the other side of the Tigris, the sanctuaries of which have been in ruin for a long time. Now, on the other side of the Tigris, he's talking about Palestine. And I returned the sanctuaries to them. And I established permanent sanctuaries. And I gathered all of their former inhabitants and returned them to their habitations. That's what it says. That's all the stuff about the return. That's all the stuff about the uh, him having the foresight to allow the rebuilding of the, uh, of the city. And so that's the, the Persian Empire under begun under under Cyrus in 539 B.C. But the second of the, or excuse me, the third of these three world empires is that of the Greek Empire. And uh, the Greek Empire 
and its main personage, Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great is alluded to in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 8 and verse 8, and in chapter 10 and verse 20. Chapter 8 and verse 8, chapter 10 and verse 20. Now, remember, in the Daniel is writing and prophesying in the 6th century B.C., in the 500s B.C. And Alexander doesn't come on the scene until 335 B.C. So this is a full 200 years late. But Alexander is being alluded to in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 10. And Alexander's reign is brief. It's only 12 years. His life is brief. It's only 32 years. But he reigns uh, for, for 12 years, from 335 to 323. He conquers, of course, Greece first. And then he moved on to, to Asia, and he defeated Darius of the Medes, that is the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, he went down the Mediterranean coast and conquered there. He went east again into Egypt, one of the most uh, famous cities in Egypt, well-known cities in Egypt. Of course, you got Cairo. But other than Cairo, Alexandria, named after, guess who? None other than, than Alexander the Great. And as I say, he died at the age of 32, lamenting that, quote, there were no more worlds to conquer. And the Bible has a story in it about a city on the Mediterranean coast that God would judge, and it turns out that the vehicle of judgment was none other than Alexander the Great. And this is through the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel chapter 26, Ezekiel 26, you have a prophecy against the city of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, Tyre. And Tyre is a coastal city on the Mediterranean. Uh, they uh, made ships, was one of the, their main industries, using cedars from, from Lebanon. And there was a, they heard Alexander was coming. And so uh, they decided to take their ships and go about a mile off the coast to a little island and for safe haven. And they packed their ships with food and stuff so that they could be bypassed, hopefully, as Alexander came. Alexander comes, and they're out there. And he's got no ships. And so they're out there on this island that they named New Tyre. And they're basically going like this. <laughs> and Alexander, you don't do that to Alexander. And so he orders, he orders his men to destroy the buildings in Old Tyre. And to, and to place them into the Mediterranean. And to build a passageway, it's known in history as Alexander's Causeway. Who needs a ship when you can build a driveway to go out to the island? And that's, that's precisely what he did. And in doing so, it fulfilled in very exact detail... God's judgment against Tyre in Ezekiel chapter 26, which said your buildings will be thrown into the sea. And here's Alexander doing that, throwing their buildings into the sea. Now, I just want to stop here because one of the many things that fascinates me about studying the Bible is how many different people are used 
by God in the Bible. Uh, you know, going back to Pharaoh. If Pharaoh is used by God, and, and used by God for God's purposes. Pharaoh's rebellion is used by God for God's purposes. And you look at guys like Alexander, and then you, you move forward at the time of, of Jesus with Caesar Augustus issuing a decree that all the world should be taxed. And so now all the people need to go back to the town of their ancestry for the census for taxation, which meant Mary and Joseph are going to go to Bethlehem because that's the city of their ancestry, which is God orchestrating all of this for the Messiah to be born where he predicted hundreds of years earlier through the prophet Micah in chapter 5 and verse 2 that it would be in Bethlehem that the Messiah would come. But this is Caesar Augustus issuing the decree to get him there. Now, Augustus doesn't know his Bible. And Pharaoh doesn't know his Bible. And Alexander doesn't know his, doesn't know his Bible. But they're all being used by God. Which then gives me this phrase that I uh, remember often and, and live by. Everybody works for God. And remember that, friends. Everybody works for God. Every last person works for God. Even the people that don't want to. And by the way, that would be most people. But they're still doing God's bidding, ultimately. So, you know, before you get too rattled about who gets elected in the next election, and we do want God's moral will to be done, his sovereign will will be done. But we want his moral will to be done as well. So you want to vote accordingly. I'll give some instruction on that next next year. <laughs> next year. In the election. Near the election. But you want to vote accordingly. But, but you know, whatever happens. I mean, you know, I gave instruction in 2008. Yeah. 2012. It didn't work. <laughs> okay. But I'm still good. Because everybody works for God. And everything's working out according to God's to God's timetable. So here's Alexander fulfilling prophecy and fulfilling prophecy in very exact ways from Ezekiel chapter 26. Now, he conquers all of Asia. He conquers Palestine. And Palestine, the Holy Land, is what we're most interested in in our survey of the Bible, of course. And in so doing... Uh, he spread Greek culture. And Greek culture is known as Hellenism. Hellenism. Now why? Because the Greek word for Greece is Hellene. And Hellenism then is Greekism. It's the spreading of Greek culture. And it was through the influence and the conquests of Alexander that Greek culture was spread throughout the world, including into, into Palestine, which created a problem for the Jews in Palestine. Because they have their own Jewish culture and their own Old Testament customs, but they also have Greek culture, and many of the Jewish leaders decided to make a pact with the devil, in effect, and go along with Greek customs and 
and culture. They were known as the Hellenists then in the intertestament times. And they became ultimately one of the parties that you read about uh, when you open up your New Testament. You remember you've got these different Jewish religious sects, parties. And one of them is the Sadducees. You remember them? They're They're the Hellenists of the intertestamental period. They were the guys who basically said, live and let live. We'll go along with it. Now, you had another group of people who were known as the separatists. And they resisted Hellenization. And they, those separatists are the forerunners of the New Testament group, the Pharisees. This is one of the reasons, then, that you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. When you open up your New Testament, you just start reading about them. But they didn't just come out of nowhere. They came out of these historical realities years before related to uh, cultural issues. In fact, if you'll uh, hold your finger at page 11 and go back to page 21, very end of the notes in section, the first section, page 21. And you see on page 21, this appendix, the rise of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. The events of the intertestament period gave rise to several Jewish sects. Actually, they probably began before the Old Testament ended, while Persia ruled over Jerusalem. After the temple and city of Jerusalem were rebuilt by Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, many of the Jews became lukewarm about their religion. In response to this, some groups of more serious Jews got together for mutual encouragement. When Persia fell to Greece, the devout groups resisted the Greek influences upon their Jewish traditions. They resisted Hellenism. One such group, called the Essenes, objected to any Greek cultural influence and withdrew as ascetic monks, living their own communes. They refused to go to war or participate in social issues. The Qumran community, living where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, was probably such a group. Now let me just stop there with those guys. They're not in the Bible. But the Essenes are not mentioned directly in the Bible. Uh, But it was these guys who were holed up on the top of a mountain at a place called Masada. And the the Romans besieged them, and many of you know about, about that. So that's the Essenes. Another group was called called the Assidians, sometimes called Hasidians, meaning godly or loyal people. When the Maccabees revolted, the Assidians joined them in battle against the Syrian Greeks. I'll explain who they are in a minute. But notice down at the bottom, it says they became known as Pharisees. The name comes from a Hebrew and Aramaic words for separatists. And then being rejected... Uh, Now, by the the Pharisees, the Jewish leader attached himself to a group called the Sadducees. Not clear when they began. They date themselves back to the high priest Zadok, appointed by Solomon. This is uncertain, but what is clear is they developed as a liberal sect within the wealthy part of the priesthood. They became prominent when the leader attached himself to them. So emerging, you've got these three three sects, two of the three that are mentioned directly in, in the Bible. All right, back to page 11 then. 
Alexander and his conquests, especially in Palestine, is what we're interested in. Hellenizes much of the world. There is this resistance on the part of some within uh, the Jewish community in Palestine. Develops these groups, Pharisees and Sadducees. But then there's after Alexander. What happens after Alexander? He didn't plan for a successor. Dies at 32. And so chaos reigns for a brief period. Uh, One of the biggest mistakes that leaders can make is to not plan for succession. And you see it happen in churches. Uh, and so churches go for several years and they don't, and they've been without a pastor and the people start to flake off. And I, I never understand that. Now, if I, if I die tomorrow, you know, don't quote me. <laughs> okay. But, but the idea is to try to put in place a succession plan. You know, if there's an untimely death or something like that, there's obviously nothing you can do about that. But, but Alexander had no, had no plan. And his four generals took control of the empire. His four generals uh, divided up various sections of the empire. And there are two sections that we care about because they impact the Holy Land. And one of those two is the general who took over in Egypt. And another is what eventually became the rule of Syria, Egypt and, and Syria. One of the four generals that took over the empire was Ptolemy. He's the one who took over in, in Egypt. And then in later in Syria, you had uh, one named, uh, a leader named Antiochus who came to power. Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus is his name. Epiphanes is the title that he gave to himself. Epiphanes means this, God manifest. So Antiochus called himself God, manifest. And he was ruthless, ruthless to to the Jews. He took advantage of the high priests uh, in Jerusalem and their machinations back and forth about who would rule and whether or not they would follow Jewish traditions or Hellenistic uh, culture. And Ultimately, he stepped into the void, and he defiled the temple in Jerusalem. And he uh, offered a pig on the altar on December the 25th of uh, 168 B.C. December 25th, 168 B.C. He desecrates the temple. Um, And... As a result, there is a revolt. And the revolt is led primarily by a family named the Maccabees. So if you've ever had a Catholic Bible, remember I told you many weeks ago that it has, instead of 66 books, it has 73. And the additional seven books are before the New Testament. They're between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. And... They're called the Apocrypha. So there are 46 books in the in the Roman Catholic Old Testament. And two of those seven are 1st and 2nd Maccabees. And that's named after this Maccabees family. So it's a real family. It's a real historical 
real historical events. Some of what you have in the Apocrypha, then, is of historical value, but uh, but it's not inspired. Now, you remember why we know it's not inspired? Because Jesus uh, gave us the parameters of the Old Testament. In uh, Luke chapter 11 and verse 51, Luke 11, 51, when he said, you're guilty, Jewish religious leaders, you're guilty of the blood of all the prophets from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. It's his way of saying from the beginning to the end, and the end is the recording of the murder of one named Zechariah in Second Chronicles, which in the Jewish arrangement is the last book. So And Jesus had available to him the other seven. At the time he says that, Maccabees and Tobit and Judith and all of that have all been written. But the end is before those. So they're of historical value, and Maccabees is about the Maccabees family and the Maccabean revolt. And ultimately, the Maccabean revolt is successful. And the temple is rededicated exactly three years after it was desecrated. So it was desecrated on December 25th of 168 B.C., and it was rededicated on December 25th of 165 B.C. And that rededication resulted in a big celebration um, known today as Hanukkah. Well, that's where Hanukkah comes from, is the, is the recapturing of the temple and the rededication of the temple and an eight-day celebration. And that celebration is referred to, actually, in John chapter 10. John chapter 10. John 10, verses 22 and 23, where it refers to Jesus being at the temple for the Festival of Lights. And the Festival of Lights is this celebration that came out of the rededication of the temple in 168 BC. So you have all of that being referred to in your in your New Testament. Now, that then brings me to page 12. And you've got your chart to fill in there. And on the left side, you've got that uh, rectangle going down the left side. And 12 there is just empires. And page 11 gives you four world empires and two regional empires. They are these. Now, the first one, A, is Babylon. And B is Persia. And then C is Greece. But then D and E are regional empires that affected Palestine, Egypt, and Syria. D is Egypt, E is Syria, and then F is Rome. So Babylon and Persia and Greece, Egypt, Syria, Rome, and then to the right of that, you've got this image from Daniel chapter 2. And Daniel's image had the four different medals for these four world empires of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And to the right of that, between Greece and Rome, you've got those regional empires of Egypt and Syria, D and E. But then there's Rome, the Roman Empire. 
And back to page 11, at the end of page 11, you have Rome. About 50 B.C., Rome under Julius Caesar was rapidly becoming the next dominant world empire. Because of leadership squabbles within the old Maccabean Hasmonean family, the appointed Hasmonean leader ruler used a man named Antipater to negotiate with Rome. Antipater came up with an arrangement where the Jews could more or less rule themselves. Antipater was an, an Edomite, that is an Esauite. They were descendants of Abraham and Isaac through Esau, but not Israelites. After Julius Caesar was murdered, his nephew Augustus Caesar defeated Cleopatra of Egypt and ruled the Western world. Antipater's son was appointed by Rome as king of the Jews. He was called Herod the Great. So you start reading your New Testament now and you start reading about Herod. That's where this guy came came from. At first, Herod was good. He married a granddaughter of a Maccabean leader, built many structures for the Jews, and he repaired the temple. But then he went mad, even killing his own wife and sons because they thought because he thought they would take away his throne. When the wise men came from the east and went on to Bethlehem, why Bethlehem? Because the prophet Micah had said, Micah 5.2 there, looking for the king of the Jews, Herod killed the boy, boy babies in Bethlehem in an attempt to kill this potential rival, rival king. So that intertestamental period then sets the stage for the New Testament. The New Testament begins with Jesus Christ and the coming of the Messiah. So when we come back in January, we're going to begin with the New Testament. And we'll begin with the coming of Christ and the career of Christ, the beginning of the church and, and so on in our survey of the Bible. But in our final moments, um, I would like to take some time to look at a passage or just give you a passage in Scripture that talks about, alludes to this stuff we've been talking about and its relationship to the coming of, of Christ. And the passage is Galatians chapter 4, Galatians 4, and verse 4. And it says, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son. Now, that's a mouthful, given what we've just talked about. When the time had fully come. You see, for the time to fully come, for the time to be just right, for the appointed time to be ready, then all of this stuff happens. All of the stuff we've been talking about, God is setting the table for the coming of the Messiah. And in Galatians 4.4, Paul, who wrote that, refers to that as when the time had fully come, when the time was just right, when God had set the table of history for the Messiah to come. And think about the ways in which God had set the table for the Messiah to come. He had prepared the world for the Messiah in a number of ways. Uh, I'll give you three. He had prepared the world religiously. 
the major religious influence into which the Messiah would come was Judaism. And Judaism had a messianic expectation, that is, an, an expectation of this Messiah who would who would come. You know, when, when we get to the book of Luke and the babe is born, uh, you have Simeon holding the baby and he says, now let your servant depart in peace because my eyes have seen this one that we have longed for, right? There's this messianic expectation. Um, there is, God has given the Old Testament scriptures that prophesy, predict him to which Jesus now will point as proof of who he who he is. So there's God preparing the world religiously and in the intertestament period there was the development of uh, the synagogue the synagogue structure. Uh, you know you have the the temple and there was the, the there, there was the rebuilding of the second temple under Zerubbabel but you had these sort of satellite religious places that developed called synagogues. And to this day, we know of Jewish religious places as, as synagogues. But you know, you go back to the law of Moses and all that, you don't have synagogues. This all developed during this period. Now, why do we care about this? Well, here's why. This is God preparing religiously. Because where is it that Jesus would go and he would preach? And where would Paul go and, and preach? And this is set up for them to go and do that, to proclaim the Messiah. So God prepared the world for the coming of the Messiah religiously. He also prepared, second ways, culturally. culturally. And the dominant cultural influence, as I've said, was Greece. But, you know, how does, how does Greek influence uh, help? Well, one... Because of Alexander's world conquest, there was a common language at the time of the New Testament. A common language, Greek. Everybody spoke Greek. Greek was the, it was the lingua franca, they call it. It was the, the common language uh, of the world. And a particular type of Greek was being spoken at the time. Common Greek, known as Koine Greek. Koine Greek, as opposed to classical Greek. And your New Testament is written in that. It's written in Greek and it's written in common Greek that people spoke so that these letters could be read and could be understood. Even under, even though in the New Testament it wasn't the Greek Empire, that's long gone, right? What empire was it? It's the Roman Empire, but it's still Greek culture and Greek language. So the Greek culture gave language, and God uses that to, to prepare. It also gave Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy. In, in, your, in your notes on, uh, page, on page 11, it says that Alexander the Great was a friend of Aristotle. You know, so you've got Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And, and Alexander knew Aristotle. And these great philosophers... <clears throat> Who created a thirst for wisdom, a thirst for truth in people. But that thirst was not satisfied by Greek philosophy. And so Paul can go to Athens, Greece, in Acts chapter 17, 
and he can stand before the philosophers of Athens and he can proclaim the truth of Jesus to these people who, according to Luke, who wrote Acts chapter 17, sought to do nothing else but to learn some new thing. There's this thirst for knowledge and wisdom and Paul proclaims true wisdom to them in Jesus. So God prepares the world religiously and culturally and then thirdly, politically. Politically. And the political power at the time Jesus came was Rome. And what did what did Rome do? Well, a few things. One, Rome, um, Rome's might, Rome's military might, resulted in something that historians call the Pax Romana. It's Latin for the peace of Rome, because nobody messed with the Romans. But what that meant was that Christian evangelists, Christian missionaries could move about from one part of the empire to another without war being breaking out or you know some some skirmish happening that would that would keep them from being able to do what they intended. There was the peace of Rome. It was ruthless, but nonetheless it developed in that positive way for the Jewish or for the Christian evangelists. So you have the peace of Rome. You also had the Roman army located in places as far as Britain. And history records that some of these soldiers got saved. They came to Christ. And the message of Christ was spread even through the Roman military as a result of the outposts of, of Rome. <clears throat> and you had the Roman road system, which is still a marvel to people. There are still roads that Rome built that you can still see portions of 2,000 years later. That's how well built they were. So these guys had these engineering feats, including the, these ro- roads that they built. You remember when uh, Paul in Acts, Saul in Acts chapter 9 was on the road to Damascus. Guess who built that road? Those guys did. Yeah. <laughs> we need some Romans, man, in Michigan, for sure. For sure. And they built these roads. Well, what is that? How does that? Well, that you know, aided the spread. That aided the spread of the gospel from one place to, to another. And so you could go on as you think about how God has set everything up for Galatians chapter 4 when it says when the time had fully come, when the time was just right. And God made the time right, religiously and culturally and politically, with Judaism, with Greece, and with Rome. In the King James Bible, when Jesus is crucified in Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23, and do you remember when Jesus died, they mockingly put an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. In the King James, it says in Luke 23 and verse 38 that that inscription was written in three languages. That it was written in Hebrew, in Greek, and in Latin. Now, why Hebrew and Greek and Latin? Because you got the religious influence, you got the cultural influence, 
and you got the political influence, all of them, that God prepared for the time to be just right. And Galatians 4, 4 says, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son. God sent his son, meaning his son had a pre-existence. Now, the next phrase in Galatians 4 is going to say, born of a woman. But before he was born of a woman, he was sent. And he was sent because he had pre-existed his birth. So here in a few weeks, when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we are not celebrating the existence of Christ. The existence of Christ is eternal. He's God the Son. And when the time had fully come, God sent his son who already existed from eternity past. And he was born of a woman is the next phrase. And the born of a woman part is really important. When we celebrate Christmas, we're celebrating God having come as man and the God having come as man part is important because he could only serve as our substitute as one who is organically related to the human race. He's born into the human race. He is fully human, born of a woman, and fully God, sent from God. And he is both of those as the perfect God-man. Because he's born of a woman now, he he can serve as our substitute. He can obey where Adam disobeyed. And that counts for us. Jesus obeyed where Adam disobeyed. And that is applied to us. Jesus then can die for the penalty for our sins. And that is applied to us. Because he's fully human. Organically related to the human race. Born of a woman. Now that happened through the miracle of the virgin conception and birth. We usually say the virgin birth. But of course there ain't no virgin birth if there is not a virgin conception. And it's really the virgin conception And the virgin conception that is prophesied back in Isaiah, Isaiah 14, a virgin shall conceive, virgin conception, and bear a son. And so she is, he is conceived within Mary, uh, and his humanity is contributed by Mary, and he's conceived of the Holy Spirit, and he is fully human, born of a woman. And then it says, next phrase, born of a woman under the law and the born under the law piece is important obviously Paul wrote it when the time had fully come God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law and the reason that's important is because that's where that obedience to the law that Jesus did perfectly is being referred to he was born under the law and he beat the law and you see in the opening pages of the New Testament, Jesus as one who was born under the law. His parents, eight days after he is born, go to the temple to offer sacrifice. And thanks to God for this child, in obedience to the law. And when they offer sacrifice, they don't, they don't offer a lamb. They offer the sacrifice of a poor family. The law had allowed... Uh, for two birds to be sacrificed for those who couldn't afford a a lamb. That's the family that Jesus was born into. But they do that in obedience to the law. 
Next time you see Jesus, you know, Luke just you know gives us all this Caesar Augustus and then he's born and all the intrigue and all of that. And, uh, but then and Simeon and but you know, then you you come to uh, Luke two fifty two and Luke just says, And Jesus grew, you guys remember, in wisdom and in stature. And then you like lose track of him for a while. And that phrase is packed with he grew in wisdom and in stature. He grew physically and he grew spiritually. But next time you see him, he's 12. But where is he? He's at the temple and he's confounding the religious leaders, the elders. And in all likelihood, he's at the temple for his bar mitzvah. Because we're told how old he is. He's 12. And what happens for a Jewish boy born under the law at age 12? It's their bar mitzvah. That's a an alarm. Not my phone ringing. I had that set on purpose. Yeah. I'm almost done. That's an alarm reminding me of an announcement I need to make in just a moment. But he's at age 12 at the temple, in all likelihood there for his bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvot. Mitzvot means commandment. And bar means son. You know, you'll you'll read in the King James sometimes, you remember, you know, Peter is Simon Bar Jonah. Or the nickname that the apostles gave, uh, Barnabas. And Barnabas means son of encouragement. Bar means son of. And bar mitzvot means, bar mitzvah means son of the law, son of the commandment. So here is Jesus born under the law. And he perfectly keeps the law. He perfectly keeps God's commandments. As no one else has ever done. And because he's born of a woman, he's our substitute not only then in his death, but also in his life. When the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Here's why all that happened. That he might redeem those under the law. The only way he can redeem us and free us from the penalties of the law is if he's under it and he keeps it. And he does all of that. And then after that, Paul talks about now the adoption that we receive into the family of God, whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, when you celebrate Christmas in a few weeks, think about that. Think about Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, and all the stuff God did to set the table for the coming of his son. Now, what was that announcement about? It's 8.15. I don't like to brag, but that's like right on time. And and the announcement is uh, that we need guys, men, who will be willing to help us set up the auditorium. It will take us 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes, because we've got guys from the other classes doing it as well. Because we got to set up the tables for the Friday night ladies Christmas social. So, guys, if you can, stick around. Go across the hallway into the auditorium to help set up. All right. Thank you all. We'll gather again January 20th.